Welcome to the Friday Night Inner Space Talk. Today's talk is sense-making, decision-making, action-taking. And we're going to be exploring tonight this whole idea that in reality, all of us are trying to make sense of things from events and experiences to emerging patterns, endless streams of information. Our sense-making really does inform our decision-making and action-taking process. So if we're going to successfully navigate change and uncertainty, and not just live life, but thrive, we need to understand the process. Tonight's speaker is Jeff Marlowe. Jeff is joining us from Cambridge, um, and he has for over 35 years helped been helping organizations creating cultures that flourish in uncertain futures. He's been involved in the organizational learning movement and running innovation labs in biotechnology and advanced manufacturing. Jeff, over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Artie. And let me also add my welcome to everyone this evening to the session. Uh, it's been a little while since I turned up at uh, Covent Garden, either online or in person, but I have a strong affinity for, for the place. In fact, my professional institution um, is the Institution of, or was called the Institution of Electrical Engineers. It's now the Institution of Engineering and Technology. Uh, and their main building uh, is in Savoy Place. And that's the main building that Inner Space Covent Garden have often used for um, major talks and programs. And I've had the fortune of being with a group of you. Um, don't know how many of you are there online who've been to one of those sessions. Um, but yeah, so I, I'm, I'm really uh, grateful for the opportunity this evening. Uh, I'm particularly grateful because Artie chose a topic or the team at Inner Space Covent Garden have chosen a topic which is very close to my heart, um, sense-making, decision-making and action-taking. Uh, and really, the reason really that this is so close to my heart is because, as Artie said, for a long time, 30 odd years, I've been working with organizations all around the world to help them create cultures that originally would, I would talk about them as being cultures of innovation. That's my background. I, I, I have a degree in electronic engineering and I worked, I came to Cambridge here in 1983 to work for a, what, what these days are known as open innovation service providers. What this basically meant was that we would help organizations develop new products and new services using technology um, for mostly for commercial businesses, some, some work for governments, but mostly for commercial businesses. And I'd been doing that work for a few years when I realized, um, although that I was interested in what technology could do and always had been ever since I was a little kid, helping my dad fix our old banger cars that we used to run for a couple of years before they couldn't be fixed anymore and then replaced with another MOT failure and get that on the road. Um, that really got me started probably when I was about, I don't know, probably 10 years old. Um, so understanding technology was always of great interest to me, um, including actually poking my mum's knitting needles into the electricity sockets in our house, which uh, fortunately have a little arrangement in the UK our power sockets have a little shutter inside them that if you don't know how to get the shutter to open, you can't actually get at the live pin, you can't get at the, at the current, um, which is a good thing because I probably wouldn't be here today if I'd have managed to poke my knitting needle into the live socket. Um, by the time I'd worked out how you get round the shutter mechanism, um, which is British Standard 1363 if you're interested, uh, you have to poke the pin uh, or a knitting needle into the earth pin first to get the shutter to open and then poke one in the life pin. By the time I'd worked out that's how you did it, I'd also worked out it wasn't a very good idea. So I've always been fascinated with technology and what technology could do. But after a few years working at Cambridge Consultants here um, in, in Cambridge, I got to the point where I was, oh, you know, technology is interesting, but the people who have to work with it, the people who create it, the people who deploy it, the people who use it, in their work, uh, that was much more of interest to me. And so I was fortunate that the company was owned by a large management consultancy and they often did work around technology and innovation management. And so I used to get called in to help whenever there was a client who wanted to have more of a culture of innovation in their organization. 
Um, and so that really led me into uh, a whole range of projects and assignments around the world, trying to understand how do you help organizations deal with ever-changing requirements, whether that's driven by changing technology, whether that's driven by changing market forces, changing values in society. Organizations always had to develop new products and services. And uh, I got my start when one of our clients said to me, um, you know, we like working with your technical people. In fact, we like working with your people a lot more than with our own people. Couldn't come and make our people behave more like your people, could you? Uh, and so that was how I got my first uh, opportunity to play around with some of these ideas. And that was about 35 years ago. And so over the years, uh, a lot of waters got under the bridge, a lot of changes in society. But, but what I'm seeing now in the wake of the COVID experience over the last almost two years is that the need to be able to deal with that uncertainty and unpredictability is much more widespread. And what that means is that we're constantly being called upon to make sense of a changing world, uh, a world that is increasingly uncertain and unpredictable. And therefore you can't say, well, in six months time, this is what will be happening or in a year's time or, or five years time. Um, when I first started working with organizations, it was fairly typical for organizations to have a five year strategic plan. Um, and organizations that had any form of strategic plan in January, 2020, um, really realized that they didn't really have a strategic plan by about March or April of that year when all the lockdowns happened. No one had taken into account that possibility. And so the, the challenge really is to get away from this idea that we can predict the future, that we can plan for a certain future or at least a reasonably certain future and then maybe make a few adjustments on the way. What we have to do is we have to be able to become much more adaptable much more in, in, in the jargon of organizational world, uh, much more innovative and much more agile, this ability to change direction in response to new opportunities and new threats. And so that is the same thing for us as individual human beings. You know, a lot of the certainties of life that were there maybe 30 years ago just, just aren't there today. Um, in fact, even, even when my son, my son Alex, he's now in his early 30s, when he was studying architecture at university 15 years ago, um, it was still it was kind of expected that you'd come out and you'd then become an architect. As it turned out, um, he got some exposure to architecture, discovered it wasn't really what he wanted to do, but the opportunity then came to move into um, digital design. And in fact, he now works for um, a firm doing CGI, which is uh, computer-generated imagery. So it's the, the sort of 3D visual effects that you see in movies, increasing numbers of movies. Um, and that was an industry that didn't exist when he, or pretty much didn't exist um, when he started his career uh, or when he started at, at university. So what, what you're finding is that because of so much digital transformation that's going on in the world, the very fact that we can have this meeting now online on Zoom, um, would have been inconceivable 30 years ago. Uh, you know, when you talk to people now about some of the early days of the technologies that we were working on back then, uh, I can remember back in the uh, early 80s, early to mid 80s, when I was still doing technology work, we had to actually build our own computers before we could program them. And that meant you know, putting the chips together to actually create a computer and then write software to run on the computer. Um, maybe five years later, you could buy single board computers that you could, or you know, modular things that you could put together uh, and, and, and make up systems in that way. And of course, nowadays we've got mobile phones that have got a million times the computing power uh, of the, um, the Lunar Lander um, computer on uh, Apollo 11. Uh, from 1969 so you know you carry around something in your pocket that's a million times more powerful than the computer that put man on the moon in 1969 so the technological change that's happened is massive and of course we still don't really understand how this is affecting all of us we, we see increasing research that particularly young people are getting drawn into the whole variety of social media experiences i was watching a podcast the other day where um, someone was saying that 
there are people who are taking upwards of a thousand selfies a day. Imagine that, a thousand selfies a day. Not to post them all, but because they want to find the perfect one, you know, the, the perfect one that creates the image of themselves that they would like to project on their Instagram account um, or whatever the you know, TikTok or whatever the equivalent um, channel is that they're using today. And so the, the amount of uncertainty and the amount of unpredictability compared to just say, you know, a few decades ago is massive. Um, and with all this changing external uh, situation, the technology, jobs, roles, society, all of the changes that are going on in the world externally, what they do is they force us to realize where we have become dependent, where we have put down our roots and our foundations in things outside ourselves. So for example, in a job role, you know, you might have put your identity, maybe 30 years ago, somebody might've put their identity in being an accountant or, or being a lawyer or you know, being an engineer, which is kind of what I did. Uh, and then you find that things are happening where AI is coming along and that's able to do some of the work that you would have traditionally done. And increasingly, we're finding that the stability of, of jobs and careers are no longer what they were. So if your identity was caught up in that, then as those things change, your sense of self feels destabilized. You don't, it's really difficult to know where to put your foundations down. You know, people being curious about their, their, their gender, their gender identity, political identity, all these sorts of things that maybe were much more stable back then. And people didn't feel so, um, so vulnerable, so threatened by external changes. And, you know, we're obviously with COVID in the last year and not being able to go out. And now we don't know what's going to happen. You know, we've already seen some increasing restrictions around this Omicron uh, variant. So all of these things make it really, really difficult to do the first of those things, the sense-making. And um, it also makes it very difficult to do what a lot of us have done for a very long time, which is um, outsource our sense-making to other people. You know, we, we would outsource it to scientists who would tell us this is the way things are, this is what you can rely upon. And while that was fairly stable and not changing, we could rely on it to a reasonable degree. Of course, before science, it used to be religion, you know, until about, um, what, 17th century or so, everybody's um, belief in the world was that it was all under God's control. And, you know, if you did the right things, if you behaved in the right ways, you did the right rituals, you said the right words, you went to the right buildings on a Sunday or a Saturday or whenever the holy days were, you could guarantee that, or, or you could at least influence the possibility of your life being reasonably peaceful, successful, happy, fulfilled, whatever. Um, and of course, we, we moved away from that and we moved into the idea that science could provide that certainty. Uh, and I'm not suggesting by any means that you go back to religion, because again, you know, religion itself has been something that has had, okay, it's had spiritual roots. Of course, all religions have started from some sort of spiritual insights from their founders, but very soon, you know, they become institutions and they become influenced by human beings in, in, in various ways who have various agendas, some, you know, more political, shall we say, than spiritual. Uh, so it's actually very challenging for people these days to really get this solid sense of who is the me that is making sense of things. Uh, and so this becomes really, really important because our awareness of who we are in the world is really the central thing that dictates all of our perceptions, all of our thoughts, um, all of our attitudes, all of our basically all of our perspectives, the way we see things around us. So, so give you an example of that. Um, imagine somebody, I'm going to go back to the corporate example here, because that's what I'm most familiar with. So somebody is a senior person in an organization, and they've heard that there's a promotion uh, on the way, and they've kind of heard on the grapevine that that promotion is coming to them. And it means a bigger office and uh, more salary, of course. Um, bigger company car, you know, all the sorts of perks that go with this, uh, this higher status job. And the, their secretary has called them and said, you know, the boss, uh, big boss, the CEO, um, would like to meet you in his office this afternoon at uh, five o'clock. 
And so everything's arranged and it's, you know, you're thinking, well, you know, I'll go to that meeting at five o'clock and, um, you know, it'll all be a, a done deal. So um, at three o'clock in the afternoon, this individual's phone rings uh, and it's his wife and she's at the accident and emergency at the local hospital. And she's calling him to say that their teenage son has been knocked off his bicycle on the way home from school and is in surgery. Now, in that moment, that executive who is looking forward to the five o'clock meeting to get the promotion and the extra money and the bigger car and the status and all of the stuff that goes with it, immediately switches into being the parent. That, that awareness of self switches. And from that moment, they're off out, get their car, drive to the hospital, with a wife waiting outside the theatre, not a single thought about the meeting at five o'clock where the promotion was going to be given to them. And nothing really happens in, in terms of their awareness until the surgeon comes out and says, I have some good news for you. Um, you know, we've managed to um, you know, establish that there's no permanent damage, it'll take a few weeks or whatever to recover but you know, your son will make a full recovery. And it's only then when that awareness of being the father that was being threatened by that situation, it's only where that moment has gone by and the individual is able to remember, oh, I should have gone to that meeting at five o'clock and I didn't even ring my secretary to tell the boss that I wasn't gonna make it, right? So this, this power of awareness, this power of the awareness of who I am completely changes our experience of the world that we inhabit. You know, it's the, the world of the executive, the world of the father, because those are just roles that that individual plays. You know, he also plays the role in this case of being a husband, um, he may be someone's brother, uh, someone's friend. These are all different roles that he's playing on the stage of life. And so to really be good at sense-making and making sense, particularly in a world that is con that continuously changing in uncertain and unpredictable ways, I need to be much clearer about who is the me that is trying to make sense. Because if I'm not clear about who I am, then how I make sense of things is going to be very different if I'm in one awareness of one role, another awareness of another role, something else comes along you know, I'm, I'm, and I'm finding it difficult to work out who I am. So, so this really becomes the central thing because until I really get some clarity about myself and who I really am behind all the masks, behind all the roles that I play, and I'm able to become more stable in that awareness of who I am, then it's very difficult for me to make sense of things. And if I can't make sense of things, very difficult for me to make decisions. It's only when I can see, okay, this appears to be what's going on. There are some opportunities to make decisions here. There's some, I could do this, I could do this, I could do this. Um, based on what I understand, maybe the right thing to do is this particular thing here. So the clearer I can be, in my making sense of the situation, the easier it's going to be for me to make decisions and then to take action based on those decisions. And it, with, a, with a world that is increasingly uncertain and unpredictable and changing rapidly, what I need to be able to do is, you know, because I can't predict long-term, I can't just make a decision and say, right, I'm gonna stick with that for five years. What I have to do is I have to be making decisions that, that result in me then taking some action. And it's in taking the action that I then pick up more information. I, I get more experience, I get more exposure. And from that, I'm able now to make sense more of what's actually going on. And I can't withdraw myself completely and then expect to be able to work it all out, make all the decisions I need to do and only then move into action. And so again, this is something that organizations have to face because most of their systems are structured around the idea that they will do at least an annual plan. And the idea that you can't really do that in any serious way. I mean, obviously you've got to have some idea of what you're trying to do, but what it requires is that you're able to make sense of a changing world, be able to 
make decisions about what to do, take action based on those decisions, and then see what that results in. And that has to happen for all of us in our lives, not just in our workplace, not just in our families, but overall, because ultimately the decisions that we take and the actions that we take are the things that create our lives. You know, that's We end up where we end up in our lives on the basis of the decisions we take and the actions we take. And if we are not very clear about what are the right decisions, you know, if I'm not clear what the right decisions are for me, then it's going to be very difficult for me to make good decisions that lead to me taking actions that are the right actions for me. So really central to this and really right up front is this super important issue of making sense. And within that, making sense of who am I and what is the world, what is the context that I find myself in, the ever-changing context that I find myself in. And so there's a variety of things that we can do to get better at sense-making. I mean, one of them is to learn to be more still and more silent. And those of you who've been coming to sessions within a space for a reasonable amount of time will know that the main practice of meditation that we do here, Raja Yoga, the main practice within it is to cultivate this awareness, to, to bring out this inner awareness of the self as a spiritual being, as a being of peace, as a being of stability, as a being of lightness, and be able to sit in that awareness, to be able to access that awareness, ideally at will, but certainly through practice of, of in effect, building up the muscle of being aware of myself as a peaceful spiritual being, as a stable spiritual being, as a calm spiritual being who is behind the mask of or the various masks that I wear in order to play the various roles that I play on the stage of life. And this was something that um, Shakespeare understood uh, in As You Like It, Act 2, Scene 7, there's this wonderful line, all the world's a stage and men and women are players. We have our exits and entrances and in our time play many parts. Even the word personality, which of course in organizations, people get to do personality tests. I often say to people, have you ever had a personality test? And if you have, did they find one? Because of course a lot of these tests are, um, shall we say, um, well, let me put it this way. One of the most famous tests uh, is called the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator or MBTI for short. And you can, you can look it up and you can find out you know, where it came from and what the qualifications were of the people who invented it. I think the more interesting story about this is that there's a, um, a reasonably well-known management thinker called Dave Snowden, and, and he was at IBM, you know, the big computer company, um, in the 1980s. And one of the things that he did was an interesting study as to what people's Myers-Briggs personality test said about them, were they introvert or extrovert, Do, you know, were they sensing or intuitive, uh, thinking or feeling, perceptive, judgmental, these are the dimensions of it. And so he, he, he looked at what people's results were from their Myers-Briggs test. And he also looked at what their horoscopes said by looking at what star sign they were. And he was able to show using a fairly sophisticated piece of analysis, because this is IBM after all, so you've got to expect them to be fairly sophisticated, that actually their um, astrology chart was a better predictor of their behavior than their Myers-Briggs type indicator was. Um, unfortunately, the HR department at IBM was not very impressed with this, and he almost got fired for doing this study. Um, which showed that the personality tests that HR were relying upon were actually slightly worse than using people's star signs. Um, he rather humorously pointed out that that was probably because he was a Gemini, 
that, uh, that, that, that that's what had happened. Um, but the personality, the literal meaning of personality, we tend to think of personality as being what the individual is. We even say person, don't we? You know, like, so the, this word pers person and personality. And um, the, the, the word persona is a Latin word and it means mask. And so the question then becomes, if we are actors on the stage and our persona and our personality, our personalities, our masks, then what is behind the mask? In fact, literally persona means actor's mask. And so you get a clue that there is something behind the mask that is the actor, the one that is um, playing the parts on the stage of life. This is actually not just there in spiritual understanding. It's not just there in Shakespeare. And there's actually uh, a really influential sociologist of the 1950s um, called Irving Goffman. And uh, his major book, which was published in 1959, so that's 62 years ago, um, The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life, talked about how we are all actors performing on the stage. And there's a question that he raises, which I think is really quite important for each of us to reflect on, which is to what degree am I being who I really am in my actions and interactions with others? And to what degree do I indulge in impression management? This was his term, impression management. This is where you try and create an impression on other people because of what you think they want you to be or because of what you think will impress them. And in doing so, you move away from being authentic. And back to my story of the, I think it was a 15 year old boy they found who was doing a thousand selfies a day. Um, you know, sifting through a thousand selfies, it's a boy interestingly, um, sifting through a thousand selfies to work out which was the one that gave the best impression to other people when he put it up on his Instagram account. Um, perfect example of impression management. And so we see that, that, that these ideas around impression management that were in social psychology, sociology 60 years ago, really are being borne out because the technology enables us to do these things where we're at great risk of moving away from who we really are and putting on impressions of who we think others will like you know, want us to be, or, uh, you know, that they will like us if we, if we behave in those certain ways, or if we project a certain image of ourselves. Um, and I can talk about this from some quite personal experience, because when I was first working with these ideas um, from Inner Space and the Brahma Kumaris um, in the 1990s, I came across these ideas in, in um, August 1990, so this is 31 years ago. And in the first few years, I was aware, well, I, I became aware that for the first few years, I was still doing this impression management. It's kind of like, you know, well, how are you supposed to turn up when you're a spiritual person? You know, you have to cultivate a spiritual looking face and maybe you speak with a very spiritual voice and you may, you know, you may sit there maybe with your, your fingers like this or whatever, or you get yourself a cashmere shawl or you know, burning sandalwood incense and playing temple music and all the sorts of sort of things that are all about impression management. They're all about conveying the impression of being um, a spiritual person. And I remember being on a retreat in, uh, I think it was 90, 1993, maybe 94, something like that, where... Um, <laughs> where the there was an exercise which was about thinking about who were your heroes and why were they your heroes. And I remember that this image came to my mind of Freddie Mercury, you know, the front man of Queen, and he passed away 30 years ago from AIDS. Um, and um, it was like the, the exercise was, once somebody had come to mind that represented a hero of yours, the question was, what was the quality that they exhibited that you most resonated with. And I thought about this with Freddie and I thought, you know what, I think, I think it was about um, him being himself. You know, he, he, he didn't kind of copy anybody else's style. He was, he, he was his own person and, and he did his own thing. Um, I'm not saying that's true, by the way. I'm just saying that was how I had 
uh, uh, taken on board what was the what was the reason that I admired him why, why did I see him as a bit of a hero a bit of a personal hero and um, the, the idea behind this exercise was that when we identify with people like that we, we see people like that and you know we kind of admire them because of some quality what it means is that that is a quality that is important to me as an individual but that I'm not as in touch with it as I might be and therefore it's when I see them and their example that I get the experience of that quality it's kind of like it their behavior or something about them causes that quality in me to resonate and so I experience it but I think oh it, you know I see I see it as being their quality because in, in from my frame of reference it's their their example made me experience that quality do you see how this works and so this idea that he was being himself and that the concept that whatever quality it is you admire in someone else it's because it's important to you but you're not really doing it right so that meant that i had to come to the conclusion that being myself was really important to me but i wasn't really doing it and what does that mean and then all of a sudden what came to me was a whole bunch of, of, of things that had happened that were like messages to me that I'd not heard until that moment. One of which was, was from a colleague of mine at work um, here when I was working at Cambridge Consultants, a really great guy called Ray Edgson. And we worked together on a few projects um, and he'd given me this performance feedback in my performance appraisal. And he'd said, I like working with Jeff. He's a fun guy. He's always got a good story, uh, a good line. You know, you can quote somebody, whatever. But, you know, sometimes I would just like to know, what does Jeff think? And when that bit of feedback came to my mind in this moment of realization that being true to myself was really important, but I wasn't doing it, what I realized is I, I didn't know what I thought. You know, I was so busy trying to make sure other people were impressed with what I was able to say in that moment because here's what Einstein said about it, or here's what Nietzsche said about it, or, you know, it's just basically gathering ideas from other people that might impress people with how smart I was. And of course, this was part of my, this false identity, this, this constructed, um, fabricated self that was busy doing all of this impression management about being clever, because, you know, I came from working class family, um, I passed my 11 plus, I went to the grammar school, I did, did well, you know, I didn't really try very hard, but I, but I did well, smart, high IQ, all these sorts of things. So I was getting lots of messages saying, you're really clever, you're really clever, you're really clever. And so I was building this identity, I'm really clever, I'm really clever, I'm really clever. And therefore, my impression management was all about making sure people thought I was really clever, right? Um, the reality is, if you are clever, just use it, you know, use it in a constructive way to do things that are worthwhile in the world for yourself and for others. And then if other people think you're clever, that's fine. And if they don't think you're clever, that's fine too. Because at the end of the day, what other people think about you matters a lot less than you being true to yourself. So this really is the essence and the key to this whole issue of sense-making, decision-making, action-taking is until I gain some clarity about who I am, who is the me that is behind all of this facade, behind all of this projection and impression management and all the trying to make people like me or think I'm smart or clever or witty or you know, whatever it is that I'm trying to project. Who is the real me behind all of that game playing? And the more I'm able to become aware of that me then the more I'm able to see clearly to make sense of the situations in life as they present themselves to me in a way that makes it much easier to make decisions about what's right and what's wrong for me and then to be able to take action based on the choices that I make and that's increasingly essential as the world gets more uncertain and unpredictable. Um, the last thing I'm going to say before we go into the little meditation is I was very fortunate early on this journey to have had some opportunity to meet um, a number of very senior meditators, spiritual teachers, one of whom 
some of you will know, Daddy Janki. She was the administrative head of the Brahma Kumaris. She got a promotion to be the administrative head of the Brahma Kumaris when she was 92, I think. Um, most people have retired by you know, 30 years before then, but at 92, she got promoted to head of the organization. And she used to be based in the UK quite a lot in London and in Oxford at the retreat center. And I used to meet her quite frequently, a few times a year. Um, and I can remember going to her a few times with questions about you know, different opportunities at, at work or different things or different, you know, some choices to make. And so perhaps I wasn't so um, trusting in my sense making um, in those days as I am now. And therefore, wanted to get some advice, help me with my decision making. So I was doing that, you know, outsourcing my decision making, outsourcing my sense making to her. And she was very wise because she would very rarely actually give you direct advice. That was my experience. Yeah, she would very often say to me, I'm really pleased that you come and have this kind of conversation with me. Uh, as to your question, um, I will give it some thought. I will meditate on it. And you should also. And I, I'd be off sort of, you know, thank you. And I'd go off and it'd be like a few minutes later where I realized she didn't give me an answer. But one thing she did say to me, um, in fact, well, I, I combined two things that she said. So the first one she didn't say just to me, but she said in a public program here in Cambridge at the University Center, um, this would be in the mid nineties or something. She said, the problem with you Westerners is you think too much. And I'm like, hmm, gonna have to think about that. And then you realize that you're thinking about the fact you think too much. And then you think, oh, I'm thinking, I'm thinking too much. I have to think about that. And over time, you realize just how much you try and solve things by thinking about them, working them out, as opposed to being able to go into that inner silence, see what you need to do, make sense and come out and, and take action. And so this other thing that she said to me, which I never understood at the time, it frustrated me at the time, she said, um, I would ask her these things and she would say just do what's in front of you and I go but there's so many things in front of me I could do this I could do this I could and what she actually means is moment by moment as the great drama of life presents the scene that you are in right now with the people around you right now what is the right action for you to perform in this moment what will bring more of your authentic self into action and into interaction in this scene that is right in front of you right now not the scene that will be there tomorrow not the scene that you think will be there next week but right now what is the right action to perform and learn to do that learn to perform the right action in the moment and as you get better at doing that you start to work in alignment with huge universal forces you could say, you know, even you, you get to work in alignment with God's, you know, plan, if you want to call it that. Certainly, you're in alignment with your own purpose, with your own gifts, if you like. And as you bring those more into your action interaction, what will happen is the universe and its wisdom spots that that's what you're doing. And it goes, well, I better give you this opportunity and I better give you this opportunity and I better give you that opportunity. And what it does is it enables you to be more present in the moment um, and not be trying to second guess, not be trying to work out if I do this and that will happen and I'll get that. And because as I said, all the way through this, this talk this evening, you just cannot predict it anymore. You couldn't really in the past, but we could kind of get away with convincing ourselves that we could. And so there is this really deep spiritual wisdom about do the right thing at every moment, increasingly do the right thing at every moment. And then the fruit of that comes by its own mechanism. So that was really pretty much what I wanted to, to share with you this evening. Um, I think now the idea is that we have just a few minutes of meditation. Um, we won't have any music because one of the problems with this wonderful technology that we use is getting sound and vision out of sync. I haven't quite got the perfect online meditation experience yet. So we will do this without any music. So I just invite you to sit comfortably in your chair 
to physically relax. To take a couple of deep breaths. And as you breathe out, just breathe out any tension. So as you breathe out, just relax. And become aware of yourself, where you're seated, the room that you're in, screen you're in front of and just for the next few minutes be totally present be here now whatever you need to do later you'll remember that Return to that in a few minutes. But for just these few moments, become aware of yourself, the feeling of the chair supporting your body. aware of the breath coming in and going out. Be aware of any sensations in the body. Just notice them. Now become aware of any thoughts in your mind. And the number one most important thing, right at the very foundation of this practice, is the ability to step back and observe your thoughts. And if a thought comes, I don't know how to step back and observe my thoughts. Just observe that thought. The thought, I don't know how to do this, or am I doing this properly? These are thoughts that pull us back into thinking. Whereas the aim here is not to stop thinking, but simply to observe my thoughts. And yes, I'll get caught up in them. But the moment I notice that I've got caught up in my thoughts, in that moment, I'm no longer caught up in my thoughts. 
the very act of observing my thoughts puts me in this position of the spiritual being, the soul, the being of peace, observing. Just this simple practice of observing allows me to experience who I am, a peaceful being. It's as though all the thoughts that are changing are like ripples on the surface of an ocean. That ocean is me. I go very deep. Yes, the wind and the waves are on the surface. But in the depths of my being, I am peace. And as I develop this muscle, this ability to step back, with a little practice, a little and often, just like with their physical exercise, try and do two hours all in one go when you've not practiced for ages. And not only will you probably pull a muscle, strain something, you certainly put yourself off doing it again just a little and often, a few minutes here and there. Gradually, you begin to realize who you are behind the roles that you play, the thoughts that you create, the feelings that you experience. And from this position, you're able to see much more clearly You're able to make sense of things. And in making sense of things, it's much easier to make decisions. And then you know which are the right actions so that you just do what's in front of you. Om Shanti. I am a being of peace. Thank you, Jeff, for the meditation. A couple of questions have started to come in. And so the first one is, how do you make sense of things when you feel overwhelmed? It may be something complex. It may be that there's lots of choices, but how do you, or is it just a question of hindsight? I missed the middle bit of the question, Artie. How do you um, make sense yeah. of things when you feel overwhelmed yeah so you can't basically whilst whilst you're feeling overwhelmed you can't make sense of things I mean that's the bottom line right so you have to learn how to get out of the feeling of being overwhelmed right so just like we were doing in that little meditation practice there if you think of and some of you will have heard this expression traffic control right so there's a, a, a discipline in most um, inner spaces and Brahma Kumaris places where a little bit of music plays within the building on the hour. And the idea is that in that few moments while the music's playing, you stop what you're doing, obviously if you're not doing open heart surgery or something, uh, but you stop what you're doing and observe the traffic of your mind. And when we're overwhelmed, it's because there's a massive amount of traffic in the mind. Now, it's possible for there to be a massive amount of traffic in the mind and not be overwhelmed. And, and the trick here is the relationship that you have with the traffic. So if you're on a road and there's a pavement or a sidewalk, um, you've got the choice of standing in the road or standing on the sidewalk. If you stand in the road, you can get knocked over by a bicycle. 
might be the only thing that comes down the road, but if you're stood in the road, you can get creamed by the bicycle. If you're standing on the pavement or the sidewalk, doesn't matter how much traffic is going down the road, it just goes down the road. And so this ability to step back and get out of the flow of the traffic and observe the flow of the traffic is the thing that enables you to break this connection with the overwhelm. And then even with just a second or so of respite, you get this sense of what the right thing is to do, what the right next step is to take. And okay, you know, initially, if you've been in a state of overwhelm and burnout and all these sorts of things for a long time, sure, you're going to get caught up in it again. But the moment you've had, once you've had that experience once of being able to see that you have the capacity within you to step out of the traffic and watch the traffic go by, not try and stop the traffic. That's the key thing. Step back, allow the traffic to be, give it permission to be there, give the overwhelm permission to be there, but just step back and observe it. And it's from that position that you're then able to make more sense and take a decision about how to move forward. Thank you. I love that image of stepping out of the traffic and not trying to um, <laughs> jump in between all the traffic that's occurring. Second question. I find it very difficult to make any sort of decision and I'm always sitting on the fence. I don't like this situation, but I'm unable to change this. Can you offer any suggestions apart from meditation? Hmm. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I think the first thing I would say is I would um, encourage you very much to, uh, I was going to say question, but that's probably not the right word, very much to um, reconsider the statement that you don't have the ability to make decisions because so long as you have as long as you've made the decision that you don't know how to make a decision then you won't be able to make a decision so at least hold the possibility that you might be able to access moments of clarity through meditation or you know through, through luck or whatever it might be but the possibility that there could be moments of clarity where it's possible for you to make a decision um the other piece of this that I think is really, really important, and my, my wife Alison had this even before we started meditating, and part of the kind of, a lot of us are a bit of control freak, right? We'd like to be in control of everything, and so we try and second guess every possibility of things before we'll take a decision because we don't want to, you know, make the wrong decision because, well, you know, it has consequences, okay? So we try and get, get on top of everything and you end up with like an analysis paralysis where there's just so many thoughts going around in your head, you just can't make any sense of anything. And so the, the insight that I think is really important here, which as I say, Alison always had, is that um, sometimes we're trying to make a decision before the moment of the decision has arrived. And apparently the Duke of Wellington used to say that, when it is not necessary to make a decision, then it is necessary to not make a decision. So what that means is to be able to cultivate more of a state of being comfortable with uncertainty. And if, if anybody wanted the lesson of the last 20 months, it's being comfortable, be comfortable with uncertainty. So the more you're able to be comfortable in uncertainty, so there's lots of things I'm uncertain about, but there's this situation here where I do need to make, it does feel like I need to make a decision and focus on that particular situation. Try and still yourself, be as quiet as you possibly can. And of course, you know, I, I would advocate meditation because that's how you develop the muscle to be able to access that state at will, even when you're in stressful situations. But by whatever way you can, still your mind as best you can and make the best decision you can. What, what you mustn't do is to try and make all the many decisions or allow all the thoughts about all the possible things that could happen and go wrong and blah, 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 because that will cause that analysis paralysis. And then you'll find yourself absolutely sitting on the fence because, you know, you just, it's almost like you're scared to make a decision because there's a chance you'll make the wrong one. So, so it's about building up your confidence by focusing on the decisions that you need to make and leaving the ones that you don't need to make. And very often they will, they will either make themselves or, or, or they will go away, right? Because 
a lot of the time we're worrying about things that we'll never actually have to face. It's the situations that we're in with the circumstances that are in front of us. Again, back to Daddy Janke's advice, do what's in front of you, what's in front of you that requires you to make a decision and, and learn to be more discriminating, you know, make better sense of what are the decisions I need to focus on versus what's the stuff that I can leave for another day or that may even go away. Um, something that goes off on a tangent on this decision making, um, there's two further questions. One of them is, um, how do I stop fearing making the wrong decision? And is there a way of knowing what the right decision is? And then the third question is, how can I learn to trust my own decision? These are all things where it's like muscle building, right? So it's... I can't suddenly go, I'm going to do this magic thing, right? You know, I've got, I always get this thing out at this point. So I've got my Harry Potter wand. I get my Harry Potter wand out, right? And so now I'm magically able, you know, decision armus or whatever the, the Harry Potter spell is. I'm able to now make perfect decisions. No, that, that's never going to happen, right? What's going to happen is like if you want to be um, fitter and you want to be able to lift weights, let's say, you aren't gonna start by lifting 100 kilos straight away, right? You're gonna start by lifting five kilos. So you have to be practicing making decisions. And ideally you want to be practicing making decisions that are small decisions where if you get them wrong, it's not like the end of the world. Okay, we all have to make big decisions in our life as well. But the more I practice making good decisions around small things, the more confidence I build in my ability to make decisions about bigger things. It's, it, it's, it's unrealistic to expect that I'm going to be able to suddenly be brilliant at making decisions if I do not exercise the muscle, if I do not build that muscle over time. And so that's really what we need to do is we need to say, okay, here's the situation. Let me not push it to one side. Let me not fear the outcome. When we fear the outcome, when we feel we have to make a really big decision where there's a lot riding on it and we don't feel confident that we know what to do. Uh, and the reason that we find ourselves in that situation is because we've not developed that capacity over time. And for me, the, the way to develop that capacity is to increasingly build up the muscle of that ability to step back from the thoughts and feel what is the right thing to do in the moment and people have always said this you know the big decisions in small decisions in your life you can make with your head the big decisions you have to make with your heart how do you access your heart you access it by becoming quiet stable and peaceful and the best way to learn to do that is to practice doing that when you're not being forced by life to do it and if that's a lesson that we need to learn the universe will keep sending us challenges and, and signals that tell us you need to build this capacity. And so if you're being faced with those challenges, I would say this is the universe telling you build up that muscle. And so it's about practicing you know, over time, gradually, gradually building up the confidence, realizing that, you know what, very often we get panicked about the consequences, the fear of making the wrong decision. But Often, you know, what's the worst thing that could happen? Very often we catastrophize and we blow up in our minds, you know, this thing into a big risky proposition. But actually, many, many cases, if you really think it through with, with clarity, when you're in a calm and peaceful state of mind, when you're not agitated, the downside of making the wrong decision is often much smaller than you think it is. And so it's only by practicing making decisions that we get better at making decisions and that means you're going to make some wrong ones but say hey, you know no one's perfect so learning how to make the best decision you can and then if it needs to be remade later fine you remake it later but what you don't want to do is to get into this state where you're constantly just going round and round and round and round and not making any decisions because that doesn't build up that muscle thank you um, the next question is, how can one really know what the right thing is at a given moment? I am in between jobs right now, 
and this whole aspect of getting into alignment and then things opening up is becoming of great interest. Mm, yeah, yeah. So um, for me, this was my practice right at the beginning because I was used at meditation. My mind was far too active. Um, I couldn't possibly sit quietly. As soon as I sat down, I'd start thinking, then I'd start thinking about the fact that I was thinking and, you know, so it was just lots, lots of going on. But what I could do is I could look, at, put a bit of my attention back on myself and say, okay, if this is the way I'm seeing this situation, then, you know, who is the me that's shown up in this moment? And what is the motive behind what I'm trying to do in this moment? So what I mean by that is, um, I had a particularly demanding boss at the time. That's why I ended up off work with stress, why I ended up looking around and ended up discovering meditation. Um, but this boss, he was, um, you know, very challenging individual. And so I would often be in a situation where I couldn't access, I didn't feel like I could access that ability to make a good decision from my heart, from myself, because there was so much clutter and stuff going on in, in my head. So what I would do is I would look and I would say, okay, if I'm in a situation here where this guy, Frank, something is happening with him where I'm thinking, oh, if I do that, then he won't be happy with that. Recognizing that the me that is doing that is not the real me enables me to stop doing that kind of thinking so much. And it's only when I stop doing the kind of thinking that's got an agenda for how I, you know, what, what impression management I might do, or, you know, or, th or that will get me the outcome I want, or some kind of manipulation. Recognizing when I do that and choosing not to do that is the thing that allows the clarity, the space to emerge. And, and what you find is, it's like with creativity, with creativity, People often find that um, they, they may be battling with a problem, they're finding it difficult to resolve or whatever, uh, and they just can't work their way through it. They can't work out what to do. And then for some reason, they're off the, you know, in a different situation, they're with some friends or you know, being on vacation is a typical example. The end of the first week of vacation, all these brilliant ideas start popping into your head about things that you could do differently with your work. Why do they come? when it's a week in your vacation? Well, it's because you stop thinking about all the stuff that's immediately cluttering up your head. And that gives the possibility of your subconscious to put forward an idea or come up with an idea or an insight um, or, or, or some bit of clarity that was always there inside you, but never got the chance to come out because your head was so full of all this busy working out, trying to decide what to do. So that's really the, the, the secret to knowing what to do in any moment is to not be doing too much thinking about what you think you should do in any moment. And it's when that quietness is there that an insight will come up and you, and you become, become um, the, the technical term for it is, is acuity. You know, your ability to detect when this is coming from that authentic core of the self becomes better and then even if you don't understand what the implications are of the decision, you know what the decision is to make because it comes from inside in that way. It's not come from some sort of calculation where you've worked out the odds or some formula or anything like that. The fact is we've overdeveloped that capacity to think things through. And this is what I think Daddy Janky was talking about when she said, you Westerners think too much. We try and do everything. You know, we're proud of this hammer. So everything looks like a nail. So only when we stop hammering everything with our analytical mind that that subconscious self gets a chance to drop something in and we go that's the right thing to do and we don't know how we know it's the right thing to do we just know it is that's the thing we have to access and that's the thing we have to build trust in and it only comes by practicing it okay so the very next question is just from this answer um how, how do you learn to trust your subconscious mind? I think like, for example, um, as you increasingly get this experience of what feels right and what feels right without an agenda, 
as you get that separation between all the agendas that the masks, the roles, the false self, if you like, keeps spinning out and I could do this, I could do this, and that'd be great. And that, I mean, I'd like that and that, you know, and that could make money. And I could, they're the people who invest with it. As you separate yourself out from all that stuff, now, I mean, you don't do it all at once, but as you gradually start to separate out, what happens is things come to your, to your awareness that just have a feeling with them. They have a feeling of being the right thing to do. And that's where you need that little bit of faith and that little bit of courage to say, I'm going to give that a little try, which is you know, why I was saying earlier, don't bet the farm, you know, don't, don't be trying to fix your whole life, you know, like, I'm going to have a complete change of career and do this amazing thing, but I just don't know what it is, right? It's like you, you have to develop this capacity to pick up this insight from inside and it comes with a feeling it comes with a feeling of authenticity and, and you can only know about it by feeling it so you really do have to look for it you know look for the feeling or listen somebody once said i think it's quite a good phrase listen for a feeling listen for the feeling of what feels like the right thing to do and having had that feeling you have to take action on it right because if you don't take action on it it's a bit like there's a little voice inside yourself saying you really ought to do this and if you ignore that voice or if you override that voice eventually it says well you know there's not really a lot of point coming along and giving these suggestions because you never do anything with them and so it goes quiet it's a bit like a small child you know if a parent ignores a small child eventually they stop coming along to to talk to the parent or whatever and they go off and cause mischief Right. So that's why we don't necessarily trust our subconscious, because we haven't listened to it. We haven't listened to our conscious. We haven't listened to that feeling inside that when we really know what the right thing is to do, even if it's a bit scary, we know the right thing to do in the situation. It's only by doing it that we then get better at knowing what that signal is, detecting it, and that acuity improves, and then the more we use it, the more we realize, you know what, this makes life so much easier. And then you get better and it gets stronger. And, and, it's, a, and it's a positive regenerative cycle. But you've got to start with it somewhere. And the nice thing about it is when you genuinely have the intent to start and you genuinely earnestly try and develop that capacity, there's something about life that just, you know, makes, makes it start to work better that way. But you really you have to take the step. It's no good trying to analyze it, work it out, you know, read 26 books about it, because that's just thinking again. Jeff, that's brilliant. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this evening's talk. And I like this um, new phrase that I'm going to play with. It's a concept we've had within the Raj Yoga Meditation course, but I've never phrased it like this, impression management. So I know I'm walking away with that to play with it. So all that's left to really say is, Jeff, thank you so much for the talk. Um, as I said, I love this idea of impression management. And I also like the idea of all I need to do is practice, practice making decisions. Oh, and also learn to step out of the traffic so that I, even if there is a huge amount of information or overwhelm occurring, I don't get caught up in it emotionally. So thank you.